0: So we're just going to move right into our next presentation, uh, which includes me. So how fun is that? I want to bring up, to help me today, uh, Dr. Todd Valenius. Todd Valenius joined our group in 1990, when was it, Todd, 98?
1: 1998.
0: Uh, When he finished his family medicine uh, residency, and he did an extra year of fellowship in behavioral health. Little did he know how much this was going to be needed. And at that time, he was the behavioral health department. Now he has an department of six, seven, eight, nine clinicians on his team. And we have an integrated uh, healthcare care system that we hopefully will show you a few tips about managing complicated patients. So our title is Untying the Knot, Successful Management of Common mental health issues in the HIV clinic.
2: And uh, I would like to thank Dr. Ross for getting me into this. It often uh, puts me in a hyper alert state. So if I start having problems with memory, I'll exemplify some of the topics we're gonna talk about. Um, and also to thank you guys uh, for the opportunity to discuss with you the prevalence and comorbidity of health issues that really have formed the crux of our combined 29 years of practicing HIV-integrated care, and to share with you some tools that we've picked up along the way that I hope will help you and your patients untie the knot.
0: So today we're going to discuss disease, and prevalence, and comorbidity of common mental health issues such as depression, PTSD, and personality disorder, and hopefully we'll get a chance to do some practical skills using illustrative cases, which are the most helpful. So really, the genesis of this talk came from Dr. Cheever. She said one time in our conference call, you know, sometimes I look at my patient list and I get a big knot in my stomach when I see so-and-so's name. Maybe we could have a talk about that. And so the light bulb went off because I have that feeling quite a lot as well. The question is, why should we bother to untie the knot? You know, so we have, you know, mental health patients are complex. They are a knot of their own. Their own issues are complex. So it's a knot uh, for us to take care of them. It's our own personal knot as well. But really the issue is that mental health problems are so common in people living with HIV. If we don't learn skills to undo the knot, we're going to be doing our patients a disservice. Likewise, We know that mental health issues affect adherence to HIV medications, so we have to work on untying the knot. But last but not least, and we've heard this from alcohol and everything else, if we don't address mental health problems, we're not addressing comorbidities to HIV. The comorbidities that we normally address, like diabetes or or hypertension, we're familiar with that. We know how to manage a hemoglobin A1C of 12. We need to be just as familiar as knowing how to manage people with depression or PTSD because our patients do not live as long with these comorbidities.
2: So we would like to hear from you. What proportion of patients in your HIV clinic do you think have mental health issues? Is it 25%? 50%, 75% or everyone that walks through the door. Take out your little pads.
0: (laughs) That was quick. (laughs) So three out of four is what most of you all think. That's fantastic. Let's look at a little bit of the data, but first we're gonna talk about the big three little piggies. Okay, we're gonna talk about depression. We're going to talk about PTSD and personality disorder. Now, of course, people don't come in with one label across their forehead. It's usually a spectrum. But together, these little piggies can really blow your clinic down. Can they not? (laughs) So let's look at one disorder, and that's major depressive disorder. We know that in the general population, the prevalence is around 5.8% but recent studies have put it as high as 9%. In folks with chronic illness, diabetes, heart disease, it's closer to 9.5%. But in our HIV population, it's two to three times higher than the chronically ill. And we know in women, major depressive disorder is four times higher than in women who are HIV negative. And this relates to morbidity, when we look at suicide rates for women, which are five times higher than in HIV-negative women.
2: I found those statistics staggering. It's amazing. And with regard to post-traumatic stress disorder, which affects both men and women, in the general population, we see a rate of 6.8 to 7.8%. And we don't really have good data for the chronically medically ill, but in our HIV population, That's between 30 and 50 percent, so one out of every two to three of your patients coming through the door may have PTSD.
0: And what about our favorite personality disorders? (laughs) Some data shows that the general population is around one out of ten, one out of twelve persons have a personality disorder. We don't have good data on the chronically medically ill But in HIV, we've seen some data that shows 20 to 36%. So again, one out of three people that walk through the
2: door. So if you take a a sample caseload for the day of say 20 patients that you see, if you look at those statistics, that's five of your 20 have major depressive disorder, five have a personality disorder, and eight may have PTSD. So that's 18 out of 20.
0: No wonder my heart feels like this, beating it out of its chest. So we know how many people are likely to have mental health issues in the HIV clinic, 18 out of 20, if we think about it like that. What I really wanted to know is why. Why is it so prevalent? And I think part of that has to do with the growth and development of the brain.
2: So... Let's go back to 101 and the basics of brain growth and development are the brain needs a safe environment in which to develop and that there are two phases in early development. There's the laying down of the neural circuitry. And so if you think about it, the first three years of life, an infant goes from just sleeping, eating and eliminating to walking and talking and interacting with social environments. So you're laying down billions of synapses during this early phase. And then over the next ensuing 15, 20 years of young adulthood and adolescence, you're pruning away some of that neural circuitry. And what you prune away can be good or it may be bad. And this affects a person and their adaptive behaviors throughout the rest of their lifetime.
0: So we have normal brain growth and development. What about the normal development of memory? Because that's critical as well.
2: And so we take in episodic memories um, through our senses and we first put them temporarily in the right limbic system where the the cognitive aspects are housed in your hippocampus and the emotional associations are in your amygdala. And then as you process these through thinking and talking, you shift these over into the neocortex. Primarily the left neocortex, where you can retrieve from these memories throughout your lifetime.
0: These are big memories I guess we could learn from.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Watch out for that V-nest, perhaps. <laughs> so what happens when the brain is under stress? We get brain pellets, apparently. <laughs> but what we do know happens is that that hypopituitary adrenal system is activated and the level of cortisol goes up.
2: Like mine, when I'm up in front of a bunch of people. (laughs) And so what happens is that cortisol level goes up, it affects the hippocampus and your ability to create or form memory.
0: And we know that high levels of adrenal hormones or cortisol also suppress the immune system. So that's really what we're sort of about, right? But it's this chronic hyperarousal state it makes it really difficult to regulate other autonomic responses.
2: And it also impairs one's ability to read um, um, uh, emotional signals in relationship to the other, the other people. And that affects a, a person's ability to develop empathy and to regulate their own affect.
0: So stress on the brain creates this hyperarousal state and the brain is not able to process information, information correctly. So we can't transfer properly. The brain is damaged. So say a traumatic event happens. E. dead. <laughs> Let's talk about traumatic memory.
2: So we talked about with normal memory, the episodic memory is housed temporarily in your right limbic system. With a traumatic memory and all that stress and cortisol and the effect on the hippocampus, it gets stuck in your right limbic system indefinitely. And it doesn't shift over appropriately to the left neocortex. And so this can lead to a person remaining in a state of of what we call emotional and cognitive looping from which they're unable to escape.
0: So what would this looping look like? Maybe in the clinic setting, Todd.
2: So in the patients that I've seen, it's really a spectrum from being detached uh, or passive or very quiet and and guarded and unable to participate in an interaction with me. And on the other end of the spectrum, we can see patients who come in and are very demanding um, and aggressive and unable to regulate their emotion because they've only learned to get what they need um, by behaving that way.
0: Anybody see any patients like that? <laughs> I'll take the laughter as an affirmative. <laughs> so it's really avoiding of the event and avoiding that processing that creates traumatic memory because, you know, we have many people that are exposed to traumas, but not everyone develops PTSD. It's the avoidance of the events that creates, and the incomplete processing, that creates the PTSD. And actually, there's been some great stuff done by this fellow named Douglas Bremer, who's actually out of Emory. He has a book named, Does Stress Damage the Brain? And I thought, well, this is an excellent book. Where has it been all my life? (laughs) And he talks about how stress has detrimental effects on both the structure and function of the brain. And this is especially important in the areas of learning and memory, like the hippocampus. He's actually measured the size of the brain in various areas and found that size is decreased, especially in the corpus callosum, the amygdala, and the hippocampus. One small study actually looked at hippocampal volume. So here he is measuring volume of the hippocampus. And he has controls. And they have a pretty healthy, I guess, hippocampus, about 1,200 grams. And then he talked to women who had had a sexual abuse trauma but did not develop PTSD. So were able to process and transfer properly. Those folks did not lose much brain volume. But if you have someone who did have a traumatic memory and was unable to process it correctly, developed PTSD, you could see the literal drop in brain volume. This, to me, was fascinating. Mm-hmm. He also showed a few pictures in his article about using a PET scan and the uptake of MRI of, of uh, actually, it was glucose. So yellow is good, lots of glucose. I think glucose is good for the brain. And white is also an area of increased activity. Now, on the top half is the folks who had a trauma but no PTSD. And you can see they have two, three bright areas of yellow. And on the bottom half is the folks who had had abuse but developed PTSD. And you can see just the decrease in uptake.
2: And though as family physicians, we don't get to read PET scans very often, we were fascinated by this in putting it together with the story that we're telling, um, that, that emotional experiences, traumatic experiences, cause physiologic changes in the brain, similar to a patient that has a stroke. And you adapt your practice to the patient who has a stroke. Look here. So on the top, it's on the right side of the brain that we see activity, and that gets shifted over into the left in the person who doesn't have PTSD. Whereas you can see it primarily is stuck on the right limbic system in the person with PTSD. So there are physiologic changes that go with this. <coughs> and what this can lead to are some of the things that. People experience when they're in a chronically frightened state or hyper-aroused state. They may appear frightened. They may have difficult finding words and articulating. And this can impact their uh, interaction with you in taking their history, their story. Um, And because of the effects that we've seen on the hippocampus and the amygdala, they can't think very well, remember things, and they tend to be unable to regulate their emotions. Does this sound like patients that you've seen in your
0: so we've looked at the prevalence of mental health disorders in the HIV clinic. We've looked a little bit at the development of normal memory, normal uh, development of the brain, and then the brain under stress or the trauma. And So we know we, we have seen the damaged brain. Let's see if this affects other health outcomes. Is there any national data? And actually, there is some good national data.
2: And this predominantly comes from uh, the ACE study. And ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And this study was uh, done as a collaborative between Kaiser Permanente and the CDC. And it is the largest study ever done looking at from birth through death the effects of trauma on health outcomes. They enrolled over 17,000 patients between 95 and 97, took a history of their traumatic experiences and then followed them prospectively.
0: So what did they call an ACE? An ACE to them was psychological abuse by a parent, physical abuse by a parent, any type of sexual abuse, substance abuse in the household. Here we are with the alcohol, mental illness in the household and whether the mother was treated violently, also known as domestic violence, correct? So when they followed these people and looked at them, it was outstanding because two-thirds of the participants, so two-thirds of 17,000 plus, I'm not the best mathematician, but that's over 12,000 if i close to 12,000, reported at least one adverse childhood event. And 20% reported three or more ACEs. This is a national study.
2: And so what we see is that patients who have experienced these traumatic experiences are more likely to develop adverse health issues including from cigarette smoking COPD uh, or from possibly their alcohol use liver disease and etc
0: now as HIV clinicians we focus on the things that possibly got them into our clinic and two things jumped right off the page the illicit drug use and the STD emotional sexual partners. So these are adaptive uh, health problems that these folks acquired.
2: Mm-hmm. And so what we see is if you look in this diagram, um, it's the adverse childhood experiences that they got, gathered from the history. And from these childhood experiences, people often develop impaired cognitive, emotional and social uh, and they adapt in order to cope with those health risk behaviors, which leads to disease, disability, and early death. And if you look at the data, which I think was reported in the MMWR last year, um, people had, a, there was a positive linear correlation between the number of ACEs and the number of health problems. So the more ACEs you experienced, the more health problems you developed in that list. If you had no ACEs, then you're not going to see us in the clinic, probably.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So this is really the crash and burn scenario, right? Again, bringing to mind that mental health issues really are a comorbid disease, and we must address them. So we've looked at national data. Maybe we should take a little more closer look at some data regarding HIV. There's two uh, fairly decent-sized studies. One was done in Wisconsin looking at HIV and trauma. And of their participants, 45% had had a history of sexual assault,
1: men and women.
0: 34% of the women and 27% of the men reported some type of physical abuse. Now, there's a cohort out of the Deep South, which uh, Bruce Pence and Kate Witten And uh, Nate Thelman out of Duke uh, published, and in that study, 30% of the participants had a lifetime history of sexual assault, and more than 50% of the participants had a history of sexual or physical abuse. And what was stunning to read to me was that over 90% reported one traumatic event in their lifetime. So those of you that raised your hand about everybody coming through the door, you, you may have had the right answer. <laughs> so Kate Witten understood, just like uh, Dr. Chana referred to, that PTSD causes increased use of substances. I don't think folks grow up to say, I want to be a crack user, right? <laughs> They're using these substances for a reason. There's increased prevalence of depression. Increased prevalence of anxiety disorders. Does anyone get the request for Xanax besides me? And an increased prevalence of personality disorders.
2: And and what this makes me think of is it's pretty obvious when a patient comes in with a stroke that you can see possibly motor disturbances or deficits uh, or difficulty with the language but I think what I hope we're imparting to you is that people with subtle changes in their mental health are are reflecting um, physiologic changes to their brain because of these experiences. And so now that we've looked at the national data and some of the HIV specific data, we wanna hear about your experiences. What does mental illness look like in your clinic? Is it the patient with HIV who keeps starting and stopping their medications? Or somebody who is not able to get along with anybody in the clinic except you. You're so wonderful. (laughs) The patient with multiple medical problems, including chronic pain, fibromyalgia, and blood pressure, yet their HIV is really the least of their health issues. Or number four, a patient who keeps repeating their mistakes because they have a life of chaos.
0: What do you all say? We purposely did not put all of the above, okay? (laughs) Yeah. It's because their brain has not learned and is broken, and -hmm. they can't relearn, and they keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. Well, sort of uh, taking it down to a little bit of a personal level, I can tell you what I see in the clinic. Okay, here's what used to happen or maybe still happens. I just don't want to admit it. First of all, I look at my poor list and I get all nervous because there's a person on the list that I need help with. It's all about me needing help. So havoc is created before the patient even comes in the door. Everyone is anxious because so-and-so is coming today. <laughs> then they come in and their problem list is all long, unfocused. They, wanted, they jump from topic to topic, subject to subject. And, of course, me, you know, I'm a fixer, and I try to rescue and fix every problem. And, of course, I fail miserably because I can't fix anything. And I get frustrated, and I'm overwhelmed, and I'm behind, and nothing really gets done. (laughs) And so everybody gets upset because we didn't do anything for the last 40 minutes. And the patient leaves in a trail of chaos. Only to come three months later to repeat the cycle. If I'm not learning some tools, all right. So let's talk about a case. If I could just share one case out of a many with you, this is the case of Sarah. She was a 44-year-old female, African American female, when she came to me in 1999. Now she had already been diagnosed several years earlier with HIV and hepatitis C, and we try to do a complete history and physical on the first exam first visit. So her chief complaint was that she was tired all the time. She couldn't sleep. Social history includes a half a pack a day. And just like Dr. Chander, she only drank a couple of beers, just two of those 40s.
1: <laughs>
0: now I can go back and say, i are really drinking seven beers. And of course, she used cocaine, you know, every month or so. She had no energy, no appetite, she couldn't sleep. In fact, the only time she slept was from 7 a.m. until about 2 in the afternoon, when it was light outside. Physical exam, she's a small lady and was thin. She had a right false eye and a scar across her neck. Well, being the person that I am, I wanted to know what happened to that eye she said, well, it was knocked out when I was a child. How about that scar there? This wasn't thyroid surgery, I take it. No, my old man tried to kill me. Now, her CD4 count when she first came in was 650. And her viral load was only 2,000 copies. And I think even Mike Sag in 1999 wouldn't treat somebody. With 650 <laughs> T-cells and a viral load of 2,000. He might today, you know, how he is. But she lived an hour away in a town that was sort of small, 20,000. And she wanted to know, what are you going to do to help me? So, Dr. Relentius, can you help me?
2: Yes. And this is often what we do, work together, collaborate. Um, And really, some of the, the lessons we can draw from this case is taking you back to a slide that you put up a couple of minutes ago about how you rescue. You're in a role to rescue and fix. And I think a lot of patients pick up on that from us. Um, What are you going to do to help me today? So uh, does that ring a bell with people here? I think it's also looking at the cardinal uh, signs of depression with her change in appetite, sleep, Um, An energy level. So it looks like we have depression uh, going on as well as with this history of trauma, which we've been talking about, and her having adapted some coping skills that include a little bit of cocaine, the 40s, that we have some substance abuse thrown in there.
0: Right. So it's interesting to see that one type of abuse often has abuse abuse repeated in their lives. So that was not, uh, that's not uncommon. And, of course, that really is because the brain has been damaged and their learning and processing and transferring skills don't work well. So this is a classic case of this. So her diagnosis do include depression, probably, you know, some fibromyalgia due to her chronic poor sleep habits, PTSD, substance abuse for sure, Oh, I think she has HIV, and I think she has hepatitis C. (laughs) Forgot about those. But, you know, she's achy, and she always wants to hit me up for a little bit of pain medications. And because she's not sleeping well, can't you just give me a few of those Vicodin? And we lay down rules in the clinic that I'm not able to prescribe Vicodin for people who actively use cocaine. So perhaps (laughs) you could bring me some clean urines, and we could discuss this we use other ways to treat her pain she keeps missing appointments on and off and she gets upset when you know her trazodone is not available her cycle is not available but uh, these are tied to keeping her appointments so we only refill to their next appointment just to give you a little timeline on Sarah we did cycle through a couple of tricyclic antidepressants including amitriptyline and trazodone now a great thing happened in 2005 She got Medicaid, and she found an ophthalmologist to fix her eye. And she had so much more self-esteem after that happened. She felt so much better about herself. Now, she had a little relapse in 2007 when her husband got out of prison, disappeared for a little bit. But in 2009, she qualified for Section 8, so she got her own apartment. Again, a step to establish her independence, to give her some self-control, to help her learn new techniques. Well, by 2009, her T-cells had dropped down to 290, and even Polly Ross would put people on medicine at 290. (laughs) So we started antiretroviral therapy, and she's done very well, both virologically and immunologically. Now, Sarah, you know, still does that cocaine every month or so. Now, she has diabetes, and she's still sort of demanding, coming in the clinic barking a little bit. But after 10 years, we have learned each other and learned how to deal with her personality and her issues and her needs, and my goal is to retain her in care and keep her taking her HIV meds, and now I've got to address her diabetes and other issues. So
2: lessons? Lessons that we can learn from Sarah in cases like her include that um, I think we have to start with accepting all of the patients through the door when they come into our care. And that includes not just their HIV, which may end up being the least of their issues, but all the comorbid health issues that impact their living with HIV, including the history of trauma that results in PTSD, depression, coping skills like substance use, And don't shun. Um, And I think that it's important, as Polly uh, demonstrates in her relationship with Sarah, that she began the relationship built on trust and being there and setting appropriate boundaries. And just like when we flew on airplanes coming down here, they didn't treat me differently from anybody else in the plane because I was going to come be a presenter. Everybody has to follow the rules. So same with the patients. They have to have boundaries in order to feel safe. And lastly, I think, uh, set healthy boundaries. boundaries.
0: Perfect. And, of course, one thing we don't get caught in is this PV cycle.
2: Yes, the perpetrator-victim cycle. And this goes back to um, Polly was reflecting on feeling like she has to rescue and fix everything. I think it's so important to pick up on the subtleties patients bring with them who have experienced trauma in their lives, and they often find that they are most comfortable, unconsciously often, in the victim role. And so when they put the onus on you as the provider, what are you going to do to fix me, that validates them in their victim role. And we're often the rescuer because we want to fix people. And so we develop this dynamic with our patients where they are setting you up to be responsible for them, to fix them. We want to fix them, but what happens is they keep escalating their needs and ultimately we will fail them because we're not able to fix everything in their lives. So pick this up early so you don't find yourself perpetuating the perpetrator victim cycle.
0: So the real problem is, you know, we sort of assume that abuse are just another problem on the problem list. And perhaps it's the central problem and the reason why the brain doesn't function as well. We understand about stroke. We understand about getting oxygen to the brain. But we also have to think about PTSD, depression, personality issues as a central problem on the problem list. And, of course, they don't come with one label like we talked about, but really a spectrum of illnesses. So tools, perhaps, for you to take home and put into your toolbox. The first, of course, is something we've already touched on, is that is creating professional empathetic boundaries. They're not just boundaries for my patients or my practice, but really it needs to be boundaries for the whole clinic. So when I'm out of town, the little mice don't come running asking for an exception. Of course, you know, there's plenty of reports of folks who use the ER as a way to get pain medicine, and and there's been a documentation of when they see Dr. Jones' car in the parking lot, they all come in. (laughs) So when they know that the clinic boundaries are set and firm, they're more likely to participate with real understandings.
2: Mm -hmm. And I think a second key thing is to know thyself and know that just when there are only two people in the room, actually there is your whole family tree that created the person that you are, as well as the patient and all their experiences in life. And we all have buttons. We, uh, we have the rescue button. And patients are very skilled at finding that button on you. And so you have to be aware of which are the types of patients you're most likely to get put into that role.
0: To so know thyself, make room, and really try to be centered when you go into the exam room. Now, Todd has this beautiful diagram.
2: <laughs> it's not so beautiful, but it is effective. And I use this often um, with patients, and I sit down with them. And either one of us may be the person in the room that doesn't have any room. And uh, oftentimes, if it's in the end of the day and I've had multiple phone calls and patients that I don't feel like I've been able to do what I needed to do, I can be the one who has no room for that next patient's stuff. And last week before I came here, a patient of mine, I was very reminded of this scenario. A patient of mine had missed appointments and had not picked up her medications on time and had this this, um, pattern of behavior. And so I already was worked up before I was ready to go into the room. Thank goodness my MA is in tune with me. And as I was preparing to go into the room, she stopped me and she said, Dr. Williams, I don't know if you know this, but um, last week uh, she was with her daughter, her last surviving family member, um, and was with her as they withdrew life support. And this was a woman who has PTSD because her husband and three of her children died at the same time from carbon monoxide poisoning. And she had one remaining adult daughter who the week before had jumped five, five stories uh, from her apartment because she had not been able to cope well with these losses. Had I gone into the room like I was prepared to, all focused on my stuff and why things weren't going right, I would have had no room for her. But because my MA stopped me, I was able very quickly to get centered and have all this room for the patient who needed that from me.
0: And that just leads into using a team approach. And the the team is big and wide, even the front desk staff, your medical assistants, people in the lab giving a similar message of helpfulness.
2: I think it's also key to remember, as Dr. Chander pointed out, the coping skills that many of our patients have adep- adopted in order to cope with their history of trauma um, use substances. And it's a chronically relapsing comorbidity of HIV and trauma. So again, don't shun, expect it. It's not a reflection of anything you've done wrong or inadequately. It's just part of the chronic disease.
0: And it's important for us to be a part of the journey, to be there over 10 years to help our patients navigate. But we do not have to carry the burden. We cannot beat the donkey.
2: <laughs> so lastly, but certainly not least, as my care providers, we are charged with retaining Patients in care. And many a times, patients who are living with these experiences that have changed their brain, they've developed behaviors that really push our buttons. It's a natural reflex to want to discharge them from the practice and make them somebody else's problem. But really the key to success is don't abandon them. Stay with them for the ride and don't give up. There is hope that they can change. Through appropriate treatment,
0: yeah, their brain can change. Mm-hmm. So, this is, just want to thank you guys, and, and just in summary, tell you things really that you already know—that our patients with HIV and mental health issues are here, and they will always be here.
2: And that it's important that you develop competence. In handling these health issues, these comorbidities, just like you do with that hemoglobin A1C of 12, or that patient who's sitting in front of you, dysarthric because of their stroke.
0: And as we get better and our skills and confidence improve, all aspects of our patient's care will improve. And we'll take that knot that we feel and we'll unwind it for our patients. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. <laughs> so we could take a few questions, and then we get to go to lunch. Uh, the microphone.
3: Anna Wong-Hurse. Uh, thank you for an excellent presentation. I'd like to offer a resource that I've used because as clinicians, we want something objective to work through patients and I find it difficult to look at personality disorders or cluster B as our Mm -hmm. psychiatric mental health um, colleagues talk about. But this is a very old uh, article, Um, 1978 New England Journal. Uh, The author's last name was Groves. And the article is probably the only one I've found so far that's helped me. And it's called Caring for the Hateful Patient. And I've used it as a training tool for the staff, not just for us providers, but all the staff to understand the different types of personality disorders that we deal with um, and to break it down as to constructive, objective ways to develop those boundaries and how best to approach them. Uh, and, And it's been useful for years. And as I said, I've looked for updated versions or descriptions for general practitioners around personality disorders, and there aren't many articles Mm -hmm. about that. So I think it would work well with the data you presented about all of the childhood uh, traumas and work it out and and have that discussion with different kinds of patients and what may be the background in it.
0: Thank you for that reference. Uh, So that's 1997, Grove, the hateful 78, thank you. There Also, is a recent article in the New England Journal on uh, borderline personality disorder, which we're going to be uh, talking about in that workshop.
2: And on HRSA's website, there's an excellent resource for the different clusters of personality disorder and approaches to treatment.
0: All good reason. Sir?
2: Thank
4: you for a wonderful presentation. Um, it's, it's both a question and a comment, and... and haven't worked with indigent populations since I did my training and also have grown up in an indigent population in, in Chicago. Um, I, I think there's an inherent danger in your presentation when you're ascribing um, biology to explain social phenomena. And I think that if you look at the, let's say pre-HIV era, If you look at indigent populations, not just in the United States, but worldwide, um, it's the milieu and the chaos and the, the, let's say, craziness of growing up or living in a poverty condition that creates PTSD. And when you try to explain an angry patient, whether African American or white or Latino, or gay or straight, I think if you were subjected to the life conditions that that patient has been through. And we kind of sit here and smart because we have lived through, as providers, we also have to care for them. But I think it's the structural violence and it's the structural conditions that exist that make those individuals act that way and it's not the biology. And I think that if you just ascribe it to biology, there is an inherent danger there and I think that if we put ourselves in those patients' shoes, it's only through and there's literature that can prove this that it's only when you provide shelter, when you provide a decent life to these patients, and you showed it very well in that case base that you demonstrated, mm-hmm. when she got the benefits, when she got, etc. Is when you actually see change happening. Mm-hmm. And so, and so that I, I think if you can address that.
2: I appreciate your comment, and I I think it goes back to what we're trying to talk about with brain development and really the the laying down of the neural circuitry in those first three years followed by 20 years of pruning that takes place. And if you're living in an environment that you describe um, where there's craziness going around, that affects how your neural circuitry evolves. And so I think also we're trying to, I appreciate what you're saying about ascribing to the biology. I think so often as providers, we dismiss mental health and and it's low on the totem pole in in terms of funding as well as attention. And I think we bring this to the conversation uh, because because often it's the biology that attracts people's attention.
4: I just think maybe that biology may be reversible if you did studies in terms of, of it, bringing somebody back into what you would say in normality.
2: I agree, and actually we didn't take the time or have the time to devote to the studies that do show that borderline personality disorder is treatable and that you can actually show changes in the PET scan. The same goes for PTSD, and we'll get into a little bit of that during our workshop this afternoon, but it's definitely something that that is treatable and shows biological change. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Thank you. So one, uh, two questions actually are about the treatment for PTSD. And, and as Dr. Lenny said, we really didn't get a chance to talk about that, but maybe you could just tell them briefly the two therapies I, that are right. looked at favorably. I mean,
2: what, I, what, what we have available in our integrated care team is the combination of access to psychotropic medications, Um, including SSRIs, as well as um, we use a fair amount of prazosin uh, for nightmares and flashbacks that interrupt sleep. But we also have a team of master's level therapists that we're able to engage them with um, psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy to help them relearn coping skills.
3: Yes. Um, Thanks for a great presentation. I just wanted to ask, how did Bremer define stress? So if you could maybe elaborate on that. And what were the age ranges of what is childhood?
0: So in that study, it was a pretty small study. There was only 30 patients. And he um, had selected women who had had some type of sexual abuse in their childhood. The details of that, I will have to refer you to the study itself. There was also a question about um, the study, and uh, sorry, that I uh, got a lovely, a uh, lot of great <laughs> questions. <laughs> uh, and again, I did put that in your reference. If you have more interest about the depth of, the, and, and I think it's about the pest scan, So I'm sorry that I can't pull that up. Uh, but the study was uh, very interesting, and uh, did. I think the question asked, do we, how do we know that brain volume wasn't different to begin with? And I think he answers that in this study. Yes, sir. I'm Dr.
5: Sousa, Myers, Florida. My question is, uh, the role of family history and genetics in depression and mental illness, you did not elude a whole lot. I saw only a 19%. I'm an internist and I have seen the ravages of mental illness both in my HIV and non-HIV patients. If I am depressed, I was programmed to become depressed. So my question essentially is, we have made a lot of advances in the human genomic project. Have they found the gene for depression or bipolar illness? I know of families where both the parents were bipolar and majority, 75% of their children had severe illness. So, have we found the gene or a genetic test like the HLA-B5701 test, so that on my schedule, I can, you know, I will know beforehand how many Sarah's will be on my schedule. (laughs) Have you found that gene yet? Thank you.
2: (laughs) I am not aware of a, the specific gene. Yeah.
1: They
0: are looking, you know, you're exactly right. They're taking that gene project <laughs> and they're looking at schizophrenia, especially which we know is very inheritable, depression, bipolar disease. There's actually, in that article on uh, personality disorder, mm-hmm. a strong inheritance in uh, borderline personality is as inheritable as hypertension, which I found to be stunning. So they're... I think there is research moving that way. Unfortunately, it is not in the laboratory that I use currently. So uh, we're just going to have to use our
4: clinical skills. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Um, I just wanted to know in your experience, how does uh, chronic pain fit into the management of depression? Um, When I try to sell to my patients that narcotics worsen depression, it doesn't go very well. and uh, should I really worry that it worsens depression? Uh, am I, um, you know, giving them medications that work against their antidepressants? Um, what is your experience?
0: So I think the questions are, are fantastic. It's about chronic pain and does the use of narcotics actually worsen depression? So I'll take the first one uh, and, and Hopefully in a couple of years, we'll be invited back to speak about chronic pain, which is another sort of passion and I think something that we deal with every day, but it's hard to talk about in a clinical setting like this. We know for sure that depression, pain, fibromyalgia, there is a link. There's an overlap, and we even see on TV now, oh, there's a great new medicine for you know treating fibromyalgia. It's just an SSRI. So we know there's a link. I try my best to uh, use the advertising agencies to our advantage and tell them that perhaps they need to try this medicine for pain. It's called Cymbalta. Of course, that only works uh, so well. Regarding (laughs) depression and uh, chronic pain medicine affecting depression, any
2: thoughts? Well, I I would agree that, you know, it's the same nervous system. uh, The way I explain it to patients, it's the same nervous system that regulates your mood, that enables you to experience sensation, and that there's a lot of overlap in the treatment of these medications. But I try to get away from what the TV says is there are pills that will fix everything, and I get to the nitty-gritty of skills and um, how if you show me motivation in developing some skills, then I'm more likely to participate in working with you to find the right pills.
1: Skills instead of pills, yes. Uh, uh, so um, yesterday the audience responses system revealed that there were zero percent psychiatrists here, so I am the zero percent. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and I, I really loved your talk, very different than the way we psychiatrists speak, but probably much more engaging. I did want to make a few <laughs> psychiatric points. Um, one is just to, to follow up on the genetics, which is that it's, uh, most psychiatric illness are half genetic and half-environmental And the way in which we know that is far from twin studies. Um, most uh, psychiatric disorders are, are polygenetic in, in so far as you could find genes. You're not going to find a gene. You're going to find multiple genes just as far as that part goes. Um, and uh, the you know, pain threshold issue is important with depression, right, because, treating, because being depressed reduces your pain threshold and treating depression mm-hmm. actually helps elevate Uh, And the final final thing I want to say is that your focus is on the people who really bother providers, which are people with what we tend to call in psychiatry externalizing disorders. Mm -hmm. They really Mm -hmm. bug you, you know, by behaving badly. But there's another group of people with internalizing disorders who aren't going to bother you at all because they're really um, withdrawn from their mental illnesses. So... I just want to make a plea for keeping that in mind as well Mm -hmm. when you screen for mental disorders.
0: Right, because they'll both have poor health health outcomes if we don't address it.
1: Yes.
3: Sorry about that.
6: Uh, uh, Yes. Uh, I have a conflict whenever I see patients like this, and I guess I have to blame my parents for this. Uh, Family tree. When they raised me, I was expected to be someone that was productive, that worked, that, uh, you know, was responsible, etc. When I see a lot of these patients, that does not enter anywhere in their spectrum. They're their victims. They're entitled. They're there for me to fix them, and they have no intentions of trying to get onto the other side. It is very difficult for me to see things from their perspective, even though I want to try to help them. And, I mean, I have patients that whenever they get HIV, it's almost a celebratory cause. They come in, and now I can get my benefits. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to deal with this because I have a lot of other folks that are out there working very hard, even though they have HIV and multiple other illnesses, to try to make a living and do the their right stuff. How do you reconcile this?
0: Well, I, I first want to thank you for your honesty, because mm-hmm. I, I, I think that uh, we are human as well, and we have these feelings, and certainly one of the slides was about knowing yourself and, and knowing what pushes your, your buttons. To give you an answer on how to discreetly deal with individuals that may push your buttons, I think the first thing is to do what you've just done, and that is
4: mm-hmm.
0: recognize that Your ethic is different from the ethic of the person that you're facing, and that doesn't make one right or wrong. It just makes it different, and so put that aside and see if you can focus on things that you know will help the patient's outcome, because I know that's what you're really interested in.